Welcome to the Sandbox. Welcome to the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. I'm Chris. And I'm Dave. And man, did we have a great time with Shane Claiborne at our live event. And Chris, every, every now and then I get to kind of look at what I do and I think, man, this is my life. I get to do this. I get to meet and learn from guys like Shane Claiborne and then share these conversations with all of you. Yeah, it's really fun that that's what we get to do here uh, in the Sandbox. We explore conversations about life, faith, and curiosity, and hopefully through that build a community of people who don't have to travel alone anymore. And I love that part of it. You are not alone. So often I meet people who, you know, for whatever reason, are part of a system or church or community, family, where questions and certain conversations are off limit. We get to explore those conversations and ask those questions and continue growing personally and spiritually. And we're excited to continue doing that as we keep uh, working with this podcast. Looking ahead, we have a two-part series that we're, that's coming up called Living on the Edge. Uh, from the time that we started this podcast, we want to do an episode talking a little bit about the end of life. And so we went and spoke with some people at a local hospice agency to talk with the staff there. And really, we just found out that we learned a lot more about living than we did about dying. And We just had such a great time with those interviews, and we can't wait to share those with you. So look forward to those in the coming weeks. Also, we are currently planning, get this, an epic sandbox cooperative road trip. We're going from Minnesota to California and back again. It'll be a seven-day hero's journey, and we're going to gather as many conversations and meet as many people as we can along the way. And you know what? After seven days in a car, we promise that these episodes will not be scratch and sniff. Thankfully. (laughs) We're going to introduce you to civil rights activists, pioneers, and other fascinating people. This will be so much fun. And again, I can't wait to share it with you. Which brings us back to this episode. On May 1st, we welcomed author, speaker, and activist Shane Claiborne to the Sandbox Cooperative live event here in Rochester. Shane talked to us about social justice, peacemaking, and Jesus. We learned that we had people watching coast to coast here in the United States and in something like 10 countries or something like that. In case you missed it or in case you want to listen again, we want to play it for you now. Enjoy. Well, welcome to Sandbox Cooperative. All right. All right. So good to be back at uh, another live event. This is our eighth live event, and we're so excited uh, to bring it to you. And especially, we're so excited to welcome uh, Shane Claiborne. Shane is the founder and board member of A Simple Way. It's a a faith community in Philadelphia that has helped birth and connect radical faith communities around the globe. He has served on numerous peace delegations to some of the most troubled regions of our world. Shane's work has appeared in Esquire, uh, Spin, Christianity Today, The Wall Street Journal. He's been on everything from Fox News, Al Jazeera, CNN, and NPR. He's given academic lectures at Harvard, Princeton, Brown, Liberty, Duke, Notre Dame, and that's all fine, I I guess. But he's never been at the Sandbox Cooperative, which he is tonight. So let's give it up for Shane Claiborne. Thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be here. I mean, this is real high tech. Our community is called the Simple Way. And uh, so there's 
people joining us uh, all over on the, I was in the bathroom and they're like, we got one minute to our live. I'm like, we are about to put new meaning behind live streaming. But anyway, you know, I'm like, like literally, uh, here we are, uh, folks are joining us. We're going to have a great conversation. And, uh, but I wanted to start uh, because yesterday, uh, a great incredible hero of mine passed on to the other side, uh, a man named Dan Berrigan, Father Dan Berrigan. Uh, yeah, you, we can give a little shout out to Dan. Um, I, I, I'm actually kind of curious, how many of y'all know the, the name Dan Berrigan? You're familiar with him? Because it's fine if you don't. I didn't know much about Dan Berrigan growing up because I didn't grow up in the 60s and 70s, but he and his brother, Philip Berrigan, were a part uh, of an incredible movement of resistance to the war and all of the other principalities and powers behind war and militarism. He was an incredible voice for nonviolence. And it's, it's hard to be too sad because he lived 95 years, an incredible life resisting uh, those powers of, of violence and war. And I thought we could have a minute of silence um, as we remember him. And as we do that, I'm actually going to play the kind of iconic clip of, uh, of the Catonsville Nine. What they did was they went into the area where the draft cards were held. And this is before computers and stuff. So literally when they burnt these draft cards, it was destroying the records that would ultimately lead to people um, being drafted into the war. And so they did that as a resistance act to the war and uh, ended up going to jail for it. And uh, so let's watch that as we remember Dan and Phil Berrigan. So I have, I have uh, um, a couple of very fond memories. I had the privilege to be with Dan on a couple of occasions. One of them was um, a celebration in his house where we had this, apparently he like had this really great relationship with Ben and Jerry from Ben and the Ben and Jerry's ice cream, you know, so apparently got lifetime supply of free ice cream. So we're in his house and he had this uh, like birthday cake made out of ice cream, and it was pretty spectacular. But I also got to be with him on his birthday, uh, his 80th birthday. They had this like epic celebration, and um, it was like Howard Zinn and Kurt Vonnegut and all these people there, right? And like everybody shared about his life and what it meant to them. And then after every testimonial, there was a refrain of uh, catch the fire, catch the fire. And my job, you ready for this, was to fire breathe. So I was a part of this sacred liturgy. Everybody shared all this stuff, and it was like this holy moment. And then, you know, I like breathe fire. And uh, But that was uh, uh, one time that we got to celebrate his life. So thanks for doing that. And if you want to check out more, I, I really encourage you to get to know his life because we need more more people like Dan Berrigan, you know, in the world. And uh, we need a movement of folks um, that are taking on the, the powers uh, of empire and militarism and violence uh, with the same love and gentleness and compassion. One of the songs we sing a lot of times at those events are, uh, uh, we are a gentle, angry people. And I think we need some gentle, angry people because there's a lot of angry people, <laughs> right? And there's a lot of gentle people, but we need some kind of uh, combination of those. So I thought, you know, for this first half hour or so, I've got some pictures I brought from Philly. And I think everybody streaming online can see these too. But I, 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 like what I, I, I grew up in the church and I grew up in East Tennessee. 
Um, not many Tennesseans in the house, I guess, but yeah, you know, like it's, it was incredible. I, I felt a lot of how God loved me and I, I felt that in the church. And I also began to see that the church was very good at teaching me what to believe, but not always at good, at, at, as good at teaching us how to live. And I looked at the scripture and I saw that the scriptures say that we can have faith to move mountains and speak in the tongues of men and of angels and do all sorts of miracles and prophecies. But if we don't have love, it's still empty. And I think what became, has become very true is that Christians have not always been known for their love. Uh, but there's a whole movement right now of Christians who do want to be known for love again, uh, who want a Christianity that looks like Jesus again. And that, that's what we've been trying to figure out in Philly. Uh, I was a student at Eastern University, which is about a half hour outside the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and in 1995, we had a group of uh, poor and homeless families, mothers and children, um, that had no place to go, and so they moved into this abandoned church building, and they started living there. And uh, they, at the time, there were 3,000 families on the waiting list for affordable housing, so it was really an act of desperation that they moved in. And uh, they were given an eviction notice by the church, uh, by the archdiocese, that said, you've got 48 hours, you have two days to get out or you could be arrested for trespassing um, on church property. And something about that just didn't quite feel right to us, you know. And so we, it sparked a student movement, and we came alongside of those families. And that's really what gave birth to the simple way. Um, it's also reading uh, in the Bible, as we read in the book of Acts, where it says that the early Christians shared everything they had. No one claimed any of their possessions were their own. And it says that there were no needy persons among them because they shared just uh, recklessly, you know, together, generously together. Um, so this is a special place. And uh, I always thought it was kind of ironic that uh, our vision for the church started in the abandoned ruins of this old, you know, Catholic building. But it was there that, that so much happened to us. And it's also where Katie and I got married. So you can give a big uh, uh, shout out to Katie, my wife over there. Um, we... Uh, we got permission to go back in, and you'll see a few shots here. That's Katie and I walking down the aisle, and that is a homemade tuxedo, by the way. Um, and we have our you know, neighbors and everything around us, and we rode down our block where we now live uh, on a tandem bike. That was sort of our stretch limo with the cans, you know, kind of flying behind us. And that's where we've called home for uh, the last five years of our marriage. But it's been home for me for uh, almost uh, 20 years now. And our neighborhood, uh, like many neighborhoods, uh, like was formed around factories and jobs that were the uh, magnet for bringing people into the neighborhood. And uh, these row houses were built around those factories, and the, the, the old saying was, you didn't have to worry if you lost your job because you could walk a block and get another one. But like 100,000, uh, some say up to 150,000 of those jobs left our neighborhood. And it left our neighborhood really abandoned. We've got 700 abandoned factories and 20,000 abandoned houses uh, so it's a place that's poised for resurrection, you know, and it's there that we've been trying to figure out what it means to be the church um, in a, a neighborhood that has had so much happen to it over the years. Um, 
And some of the folks in the Philadelphia area call our neighborhood Kensington, uh, it, they, they call it, uh, refer to it as the Badlands. And I, I'm always really careful to correct them because I say if you call any place the Badlands, you better be careful because that's exactly what they said in Nazareth, right? There's nothing good could come from there. So we're, we're about, you know, finding the good in our neighborhood and building on that good. And it's, it's amazing because we've got a lot of community that happens naturally because uh, if you've ever been in neighborhoods that are impoverished economically, you, you find that community sort of flourishes because it's how people survive, you know, is off of uh, uh, coming together because there's not much that uh, is still there for each other. So community is how people live. And I think it's, you know, true on the flip side, too, that a lot of neighborhoods that are well off economically have almost lost the art of community because there's a facade that, you know, you don't really need other people. So you, you, you're, you're self-contained uh, and, and independent. But our neighborhood, like... We find community, we learn community, and uh, uh, you'll see some of the pictures of folks that we have uh, lived in community with and seen grown up, and for us, a lot of uh, this happens on the sidewalks, you know, and in the streets. This is one of our big block parties where we, um, we're able to close our whole neighborhood off uh, to car traffic so everybody can play in the streets and stuff. This is one of our street parties where we have like 800 kids that come and get back to school supplies and stuff like that. So we have almost every month we have some kind of celebration that brings our neighborhood together. And this one had, are you ready for this, a two-story water slide. Boom! With liability insurance. And uh, so... but. Uh, that you know so next month we'll have a, a mother's day celebration and i think part of what we've got to do again as we think about what it means to be the church is think of our neighborhoods as a parish you know as a as a place where we're forming a village together and so we're going to create ways that we can uh, uh live uh, in community and have meals together and have celebrations together and create almost a liturgy for our neighborhood uh, and this is one of the communities where, as we were starting, it's interesting because we, you know, we're, we're kind of like renegades doing this, you know, we're young 20-year-olds, and then we got like these old nuns and monks that came alongside of us, and they're like, we love what's happening, you know, you're discovering community, and we want you to know that we're there for you, we've been doing community for about 1,600 years, and, uh, <laughs> and they came alongside of us, and so uh, you can't see Sister Margaret very good, but She's a contemporary of, uh, of Dan Berrigan here. She's a part of that same movement. And uh, she's one of the wildest folks I've ever met. She's been a mentor. And um, she's, uh, I, she got really sick a few year, about a year ago. And I went to visit her in the hospital. And she gave me this, you know, very dramatic talk about how she might be, you know, pioneering the way to heaven and she would get the party ready for me and see me on the other side. So about a week later, I called to check and make sure she was still alive. And they said, oh, yeah, she's doing great. She just got arrested yesterday at the Pentagon. <laughs> that's my girl. You know, so that uh, that's uh, and this is, you know, just a few glimpses of our our friends and community and a lot of what we're going to talk about tonight I don't think it has to be that flashy and spectacular I think a lot of what Jesus did was eat with people Jesus uh, you know hung out with folks and a lot of what we do is answer the door you know and try to be present with each other um, and, and Mother Teresa had a wonderful line she said we can do no great things but only small things with great love what's important isn't how much you do but how much love you put into doing it 
And that's really been uh, the heartbeat of our community. And so some of what we've, we've been doing is trying to make ugly things beautiful. I think a part of what we believe in the Christian story is that life comes out of death. Uh, that things that have been thrown away can be brought back to life. So these are a few pictures of that. This is an abandoned house, which incidentally, I don't know what your real estate's like around here, but we have so many abandoned houses, we've been able to get them for a dollar. We didn't even need a mortgage, you know. We paid that in one payment. Boom. And, uh, but, the, you know, the, a lot of times they look like this. So this is a little before and after shot uh, there. of um, That's the, the after shot of that. And then we have a, a little lot here that was filled with trash that we turned into a garden. And uh, this, a few years ago, we had, like, a big fire that burnt down a whole block of our neighborhood in uh, – uh, incidentally, it started in one of the abandoned factories that was owned by the city of Philadelphia, and that, that fire burnt down part of our neighborhood. So this is what it looked like eight years ago, and now we've been building a park there. So you'll see a few of the pictures of the, the park uh, here, and, um, and we believe in murals and art, you know, and I think even in this space, you see the art, and we've come to see that art has a really important place uh, in, in the movement, you know, and in the work of God, handiwork so we've got a lot of murals uh, that we paint and uh, just as a note to self it's a a crime apparently to paint a a mail container uh, there so (laughs) just in case you were thinking of doing it you know uh, in defense of whoever painted that uh, uh, like the it was covered with graffiti when the person painted that okay so um yeah but these are these are a few of our our murals and on our front door is this this uh, wonderful prayer heal all that is broken in our hearts in our streets and in our world and sometimes i think that we've separated the social dynamics of the gospel from the idea that god wants to save you know individuals and yet those are totally intertwined right that god is healing hearts god is healing streets and god is healing a world and on the wall of the recovery community um uh, at new jerusalem in philadelphia there's this beautiful saying it says we cannot fully recover until we help the world that made us sick recover So as we think about the kingdom of God, Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. But he also talked about the kingdom of God as this realm of God's rule that is almost asking, it's it's like imagining what would it look like if God uh, were the mayor of our city, right? If God's dream came true for our neighborhood, for our world. And that's what we're dreaming about, you know, and, and trying to make real. So this is the lot where the factory burnt down. And just to tell you, show you what's come of it, like it was filled with trash for years later. Uh, and after like five years, we got fed up and we just said, we're going to build a park here. And so we started organizing and we got our neighborhood together and we painted a, a mural actually on the, the building originally, like on the side of this thing. And it says, Dear City of Philadelphia, it's been five years since that fire. Help us build a park here. And everybody signed it. And, uh, and now uh, we've got the support of all kinds of folks in the city, and we're building a park with our friends uh, at a health clinic called Esperanza. And we're going to build a community health center there, and uh, it's pretty exciting, right? So this is like a little piece of what uh, we've been building uh, on our block, and we call it Phoenix Park because it's coming up out of the ashes. 
So that's, that's a, a little glimpse of that. And, and, you know, one of the things that we've been trying to figure out is, is this idea that folks talk about the urban desert, you know, that there's places where you can't find access to really good food. Um, and often the more concentrated a population is, the less access to good locally grown food is. And so we've started growing some of our own food. And um, uh, it, it seems like... Uh, a really radical act because some of the kids are getting to see where food comes from, you know, and uh, I think Katie was in a uh, little class with a gardening class she did with the kids and said, what grows on an eggplant? And one of the kids said, eggs. She's like, it's going to be a long class, but it's going to be, we're going to, we're going to get there, you know, and so, but you know, for a lot of the kids, they're growing uh, food for the first time and seeing where carrots come from, you know, and seeing uh, uh, this wonderful uh, young man, Tyshawn, he came uh, down the block one day and he's hysterical. And I thought at first it was an emergency. And he goes, come here, come here, come here. He drags me down the block. And, um, and, and all of this drama to show me a firefly, right? He goes, what is that? I'm like, that, my brother was a really great day for God. God was like, I'm going to make a bug that's butt glows in the dark, you know. <laughs> and there literally is something holy and sacred about seeing, you know, butterflies and praying mantises and fireflies come to Kensington. And our latest project has been this little uh, aquaponic system where we can grow fish underground and then grow plants off of the fish. And uh, so you'll see a couple of shots here of the, the plants grow off the fish waste and the fish grow underneath. And so that it's like creating our own little ecosystem in the city and amidst the concrete. And it's awesome because stuff grows like it's on steroids, you know, and because and, it's getting fed and watered all day long. And uh, so that's that's been one of our, our latest little projects. This is our Swiss chard harvest a year or so ago where we had uh, all the Swiss chard. We were able to share with like 50 neighbors, you know. And, and so I think that's one of my neighbors. She um, had the best theology and language for it. She said, I get what we're doing. And I said, what? She said, we're trying to bring the Garden of Eden to North Philadelphia. I'm like, <laughs> boom. You know, like that's, that's beautiful. That is what we're trying to do. So that's our kind of our dream. And a part of that is asking the question of uh, what are the obstacles to that dream coming true? And for us, I think even as we think outside of Philadelphia, we think of our country. One of the things that we're up against is a contagion of violence, right? I just read a story this uh, today that says uh, that t- toddlers, toddlers have killed 23 people this year. If you saw the news this month, a two-year-old child found a gun and, uh, uh, and shot his mom. Another two-year-old child uh, in Indiana shot himself and killed himself. And we, uh, this month, we had a four-year-old that was shot accidentally by her father. We had several people killed in our neighborhood even this month. And as we look at our country, we see that there's uh, almost 90 deaths a day. 90 deaths a day, 11,000 homicides from gun violence a year. And that's epidemic in Philly, um, where it was almost one homicide a day. 
in Philadelphia. And so we started looking at that. And we, uh, it wasn't just a debate, but it was folks that we knew the names of and the stories of, you know. And so we began to create a movement in Philadelphia. And this is uh, one of the images of that where uh, we have an incredible faith movement called Heeding God's Call. And it's uh, made up of, of uh, a wide, broad coalition of folks that are committed to stopping the gun violence. And so this is one of our Good Friday services that we had outside of the gun shop. And we've also had pastors and clergy do sit-ins or pray-ins in the gun shop and go to jail and uh, for protesting the places where the guns are flowing into our streets. Um, in fact, during one of those trials, I think it was uh, about a dozen clergy were arrested and they went to trial and schools were let out so that they could go to see the trial. And what it did was it actually put the gun shops on trial. And in the course of that trial, all of the defendants were found not guilty and the gun shop was found guilty. The license was revoked and it was shut down in the ensuing months. And we've seen several, not just, we're not out to just set, shut down all the gun shops, but we've looked at where the guns are coming from. And the fact is that uh, it, it, just a handful of gun shops are responsible for the, uh, the, the trafficking of guns that end up used in violent crimes. So that's one of the recent movements that we've uh, been a part of. And we've also... Um, uh, got really inspired and we, we've seen congregations in the suburbs that have set up memorials like this one where they put t-shirts out for all remembering the names of all of those who have died in Philadelphia. So it's an amazing act of solidarity, right, for uh, suburban congregations and other congregations to put out these shirts with the names of the 270 people killed last year in Philadelphia. So I think there's ways that we've got to uh, create a public lament around the things that are happening uh, in our, our country and in our cities, and this is one of the expressions of that. But we also, uh, I like to say that we're not just protesting, but we've got to protestify. You know, we've got to proclaim how things can be different. And uh, one of the great images in Scripture is this image of beating swords into plowshares. It's an image that Dan Berrigan was the champion of in the plowshares movement. And, and uh this image comes from Micah and Isaiah, and they say God's people will beat their swords into plows, their spears into pruning hooks. And it goes on to say that nation will not rise up against nation. People will study war no more, and folks will be able to live without fear. And great, like eschatological image you know and you think of that and we got so excited we just started doing it you know we got these great friends that are Mennonite blacksmiths and welders and so uh, they taught us some welding classes and stuff and uh, we um, we started uh, getting some guns it's amazing what you can do with Twitter and Facebook and some of you online you know that like we put we started posting on our social media send us your guns and people did like <laughs> We got an AK-47 donated, and a guy just had it in his closet and was like, yeah, I don't think I need this. You know, and so we took that thing, and this is, you know, the AK-47 before, and this is afterwards. <laughs> Boom! We made a uh, shovel and a rake out of that. That was one of our first transformations. Um, and then uh, we started getting images from all over the world, right, of folks that had made guitars out of guns, handguns. Uh, that, that thing really plays music. And uh, we got to get you one of those, brother. We got to get you one. And, uh, and, and then we got this image of a man in Mozambique that had made a saxophone out of a semi-automatic. 
And uh, we got this, this was uh, from Iraq where I spent some time and these uh, young people and families uh, got guns and they poured them in the streets and they said, we want our young people to catch a vision for an Iraq free of violence. And so they ran over the guns with a steamroller. <laughs> And they said, we wanted the kids to drive, so they let the kids drive that thing, you know, and their parents are with them, don't worry, you know. And then one of our most powerful uh, transformations of of weapons was recently in Philadelphia, we uh, got a gun that was found in an abandoned house, and this is one of the, the issues in Philadelphia is that we've got massive amounts of handguns. See, I grew up in Tennessee where we have guns that, you know, you hunt deer with and stuff. And actually one of our best allies in the gun violence stuff has been hunters against gun violence. You know, folks that owning a weapon for hunting or, you know, protecting your ranch from coyotes or something doesn't equal 11,000 people dying of homicides or semi-automatic weapons that can shoot a, you know, 100 uh, rounds in a minute or whatever. And so that's been one of our allies. And one of the laws that we thought, uh, you know, was a good idea was called one handgun a month that would just allow people to have one handgun a month. And the, the assumption is, like, if you're buying more than 12 handguns per person, like, you might not be making the world safer, you know. And, uh, but sadly, like, the, the, that, those laws have really struggled to, to land because of the power of the gun lobby. So we're, tr- we're still trying to, you know, see some of that. And, and, uh, but we, we took this gun and we heated it up uh, in the, the forge, and then instead of just our blacksmith friends, we invited the victims of gun violence, those who had lost their loved ones, uh, to be a part of the transformation. So this mother, um, Sherry, with a picture of her son on her jacket there, that's her son who was killed in Philadelphia, and this is random, senseless act of violence, and um, she took the hammer and she begins transforming that gun, and it's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. She starts hitting the gun, and every time with a thump of the hammer, she goes, this is for my boy. And she transformed that gun uh, from what it was into what it is now. And now it's a plow that we can use in our garden, and that same handgun has been disarmed. And when you look at that image, that apocalyptic image of turning swords into plows, guns into tools, that we see the, the, the hope that we will transform a world full of violence into the world that God dreams of, right? That we would be a part of interrupting the patterns that are destroying people's dignity and life and humanity. And every time we lose a life, we lose a part of God's image in the world. And so that's, uh, that's what we've, we've been doing. And I think that, that uh, movement uh, is happening all around the world. And there's all kinds of different expressions of it, you know, uh, different places where we can see. Um, and, and in the early church, that metaphor of turning swords into plows is so powerful, the early Christians pointed to it over and over again as evidence of the Christians. This is what we are to do in the world. They said that that just as Jesus turned an instrument of death, a cross, which was only known as an instrument of execution, of horror, humiliation, and torture, it was only known for the evil of what it stood for. And Jesus, through the, the solidarity that he did on the cross and the resurrection 
he turned that into a conduit of God's love. And it's that thing, if you can turn a cross, right, into something that now we think of as hope and resurrection, then like that should inspire us to see all of these other things can be redeemed. Like God can transform a world filled with death into a world that's committed to life. Amen. Well, I think that's enough for me because we're going to open up the conversation, so I don't want to talk too much. So come on, come on back up here, and uh, we'll, we'll open up the conversation. Thanks for listening to me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandbox Cooperative Podcast. In the next couple of weeks, we'll have the video of the event loaded on our website along with discussion questions so you can watch and discuss it with your friends, neighbors, or small groups. If you're interested in catching up with Shane Claiborne, check out his website at redletterchristians.org or find him on Facebook or Twitter. And the Sandbox community is growing, and we're so glad that you are a part of it. We love hearing from you, so let's stay in touch. If you want to be a part of the work that we are doing here, make sure to sign up for our email updates, connect with us through Facebook and Twitter, and be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening. See ya. Bye. Please watch your step as you exit the sandbox.